Welcome to the Upriser podcast. I'm your host, Clinton Bonner. Upriser focuses on technology conversations centered in the future of work and how new technologies are applied and how work evolves. The Upriser podcast is brought to you by Topcoder. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Upriser podcast. I'm your host, Clinton Bonner, VP at Topcoder. I am joined today by Matthew Matola. I'm very fired up for this. Matthew, we're going to hit up a lot of ground today on Upriser, and I'm excited to have you on with us to talk about you know, your new, your new business and your leadership book as well. However, Matthew, before we get into all the heavy stuff, I got something that's actually super, even more important for you, more important than that. So the first things first, I do some sleuthing. So Matthew, I go in, I dive deep into, and by that, that means I check out people's LinkedIn's and I, and I scroll down a bit and I see, I see what's what. And I see that for you, that not too many years ago now, you were the first baseman for UMass Lowell Riverhawks. So I have a quick fire pop quiz ready for you. Four questions tied to UMass Lowell. Are you ready for them? Yes. All right. Awesome. Question number one. What is the name of the Riverhawks mascot? Oh, I actually know this. I think it's Rowdy. It is. There you go. One one for one so far. You're batting 100. Rowdy the Riverhawk, which I did not know that until I did this research. And, and... That's a darn good mascot. So he's he's a he's quite quite the quite the the fired up individual, which I, which I really enjoy. So I was looking at so question two for you, Matthew. I was looking at um, some alumni, some alumnus from from UMass Lowell, and I noticed that there was a particular alum who has now hoisted Lord Stanley's Cup with the likes of Gretzky, Messier, Paul Coffey, those amazing Edmonton Oilers teams from the the mid nineteen eighties. Who is the UMass Lowell alum that I'm talking about? Oh, I have no idea. This is where I'm now. Okay, one for two. One for two. All right. <laughs> Skip question All right. three. No problem. No problem. So, so the answer is Craig McTavish. So oh, he's yeah. a, I have no idea. Craig, Craig, so he's, he's on those, those you know, elite, amazing uh, Edmonton Oilers teams. And literally, uh, even, if you, if you, even if you don't know much about hockey, when, when anybody hearing the names like Gretzky and Messier could realize that those are some baller teams. But yeah, McTavish went to UMass Lowell. So something, uh, so you, you have a kinship with that, with that Stanley three time, not once, not twice, but thrice Stanley Cup champion, Craig McTavish. Number three is going to be tough for you. So besides winning the Stanley Cup three times, what is, what is Craig McTavish most known for in the NHL? No, oh, I thought you were going to say in Lowell, I was going to say something related to a bar because it's the East Coast, <laughs> probably a bar fight. I still stick with that answer. Probably some type of bar fight. It's uh, maybe that that, that <laughs> my, I'm not going to say no, but I'll, I will. I'll, I'll provide the uh, the answer here. This one was kind of like a two B anyway, not really a question three. Um, but Craig McTavish was the last NHL player to not wear a helmet. So oh, he is whoa. he is known, as, and this is not that that long ago. Wow. Like he, you know, he stopped in the '90s. So he is known as the last NHL player to to go helmet helmetless on the ice. So. Uh, yeah, if you just Google Craig Craig McTavish, he's, you'll see the you'll see his highlights, and he's the only dude out there without a helmet on still. So, which is you know, in retrospect, pretty damn ballsy. <laughs> it's so, extremely, and they yeah. kind of related to the bar, the bar fight, right? Same same Correct. line of angry Irish people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he probably he probably was in a scuffle or two in his day, um, but but he was a heck of a player too. All right, so back to baseball. This one this one is a is a dealer's choice. However. The, the universal DH is, is coming into question now. 
won't be here this year, 2022, perhaps it will be. Is the universal DH good or bad for the game of baseball? <laughs> so, so question before that, why have a DH? Because some people are too lazy to play the field and all they want to do is hit. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah, so that was me. Uh, yes. Even though I played first base, it was because I was a shortstop. That was too lazy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing. I mean, having a pitcher head, it's cute and stuff, but ah, nah, let's, let's get someone who's late, too lazy to actually play in the field, but just wants to hit. So I liked where you were going with it, and, uh, and uh, but I but at the end of the day, I am anti DH. I'm I'm old grumpy D- NL man. Oh, get I, a porch, get yeah, a porch. Yeah, you know, we, we, we already, <laughs> we, already talked, we, we already talked about this. I'm I'll be I'll be in Florida soon, so it's <laughs> but but for me, baseball is uh, it's not it's not, not so much about purity. I don't care about that stuff. It is is it's a much more strategic game when you have to manipulate around the pitcher. And also I like when pitchers can freaking hold their own. I like when pitchers can extend innings and clear the pitcher and get on base and set up the next innings later. Um, and it's just for me, a much, much better game. I don't like the idea that a Duke could just not play half the game and then come up and bat. I just think it's kind of cheesy. Uh, and, and it's kind of the, the beauty of baseball is so two-sided. It's always like, it's one of the only major sports like crickets like this where Half of the game, your only job is to not let them score. You know, like that's the only thing you could do is prevent, prevent scoring. And then half the game, the only thing you could do is accrue points or try to accrue points. So I do not like the fact that for, you know, they just discount half the game and say, ah, you, you don't have to do this part. And it's like, why? That's, that's, you know, there's two sides to this game. It's a beautiful game. So anyway, um, I'm going to give you a one for three, which is not bad. But if, but if you are, if you are a baseball player and you batted 333, where, where would you end up if you batted 333 for your career? Ooh, uh, in the major leagues, right? Obviously. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. Which, which backstory I actually tore my, my labrum. And so oh, things were going no. well. Right. And then I tore my labrum my fourth year of college, uh, oh. which, Blessing in disguise, because then I went and started companies instead of, you know, chasing the major league, uh, the, that route. I had friends who did, and eh, it's, unless you make it, it's pretty rough. It's pretty rough. That should have been one of your fun facts, is what does minor league pay? Because technically, it's all a flat rate when uh, when you're paid in the minor leagues. Yeah, I did not know that. I, I did know that it's a, it is a tough go for sure. So, uh, you know, sorry that you did tear your labrum, but, but Hey, think things have, things have worked out. We'll, we'll rotate into those things right now. So if you don't know yet, we're talking with Matthew Matola. He is the co-founder and CEO of Venture L, which is an operation system and platform designed specifically for freelancers to help organize and scale their work by reducing complexity and integrating into existing and myriad productivity tools. But in addition to that, Matthew, you're going to learn about Matthew. Matthew Matthew doesn't rest on his laurels. He also recently released a brand new and very timely book entitled The Human Cloud, How Today's Changemakers Use Artificial Intelligence and the Freelance Economy to Transform Work. So stick around to hear all about that. And, and Matthew, it's, it's, I've, uh, I've kind of followed you from afar. I know that you know, you know a, a good deal about Top Coder and have experimented with in the past. And when I look at your... Kind of when I look at your, you know, your career, you're still, a, still, you know, still a young man here. But when I look at your career, it's like, okay, you get out of undergrad, and it's kind of a whirlwind, at least, at least from from afar, right? I'm sure it didn't feel that way for you, but it's a master's from Babson. It's time with the with the crowd company Gigster. It's time at Microsoft working on the Microsoft 365 Freelancer Toolkit. So what I want to know, Matthew, is when the heck were you actually exposed to the freelancer economy, and how did it, you know, become the focus that it is for you now? 
Yeah, so I was exposed, uh, I always like to say all I know is freelancing. And the reason I say that is because I was exposed to freelancing the second I found out about work. And what freelancing did was it accelerated my career path. And, you know, very, very important when we talk about the freelance economy, it's not a vacuum, right, where it's all freelance or nothing. And especially when we talk about the future, it's not we're all freelancers or we're all full-time employees. Instead, it's this hybrid nature where work has become digital, remote, and outcome-based. And so I was exposed early, and what it, what it really taught me was how to be outcome-based. And every single opportunity I took from there on out was focused on an outcome. And I you know, used my experience, both being a freelancer, hiring freelancer, running freelance teams, to accelerate all of the outcomes that I took part in. And so sort of going from, from last to back to the first one, so the book was just an outcome. If you think about it, it was a three-year outcome in the making, but we had over 15 freelancers that helped us deliver that outcome. We had writers, we had actually some designers, we had journalists, we had PR specialists, we had SEO experts, you name it, just to hit up that outcome. Then you know, going back in terms of what I did at Microsoft, same thing. The outcome was how do we get customers to scale their use of freelancers using Microsoft tools? And so took the same process where we said, let's pick a deadline, let's pick what we need to get accomplished by that deadline, and let's use freelancers to hire and collaborate with. And so then even going forward, you know, further back was Gigster. And so Gigster was how do we run multi-million dollar software projects at scale using freelancers? Same thing. The outcome was multi-million dollar software projects. The medium was the freelance economy. And then even before that, what most people don't see, which was before, but also in parallel, was all of the times freelancing myself and, and sort of projects that didn't lift. Because I think that's one of the big thing about freelancing is it accelerates. That doesn't mean it works, right? That means it accelerates <laughs> what you're doing. And what most people don't see is like, okay, you see the book today that was published by HarperCollins. I had two books written prior that never saw the light of day. So yeah, that's the yeah. beauty of, you know, when you're dealing with software and a lot of innovation technology is you expect 80% of what you do to fail. And so you want to fail as cheaply and fastly as possible. So yeah, so that's sort of in my life is everything related to freelance economy. I know I just gave you last to first. So uh, usually you, you talk about what I do first and rah, rah, rah. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I just at a really quick high level, you know, I started freelancing by mistake. Um, it was purely because I couldn't do a full-time job because as you mentioned, I, I, was, I did student, ath uh, student athletics and so I played college baseball. That's what paid for undergrad. And as part of my scholarship, I couldn't take on a full-time job. It just wasn't possible. And so instead of, but I needed to make money, right? So instead of having an internship, I went business to business and said, how can I help? I have a business major. I can go get you competitors. And so I learned from a really early age how to scope out an actual contract and how to scope out a freelance project. Didn't call it freelancing. Uh, purely called it, you know, it would be 15 competitors within within two weeks was sort of my my pitch. But yeah, so that's how I how I started. And I just... I don't want to say I never looked back because there was moments that you're like, oh my God, this is hard. This is so hard. But I know I, once I was exposed to it, it was kind of full bore. I, I can't imagine a world that's that's not freelancing. Yeah. And I love the fact that it's kind of like it's coursing through you because because you did the experience. And I love I love that you shared, hey, you know, people could look at writing a book and be like, oh, well, you, you, you know, you got these people to do this and the freelance to do that. Yeah. And like you shared, there was two other full books that never, never made the light of day. And the, the sweat equity and, and toiling and labor. And, and of course, some, of course you're ch chasing an outcome, like you said earlier, but it's still a heck of a lot of work. It's still, it's still a ton of work. And for anybody to point fingers on, oh, it, you know, today is easy. Yeah. Yeah. To go get published by Harper Collins is easy. No, no, it's not. Uh, so congrats, congrats on, 
cutting through through all that and third time's a charm. So again, you're batting batting 333 on your books, which again would get you, that would get you to the Hall of Fame if you do that for a career. So so well done. Um, the thing that resonated with me the most out, out of your opening there is also a parallel to what we see when you're like, hey, it's not, it's it is a hybrid. It's a blending of skills. And more and more and more at Top Coder specifically, I'll talk about this. Like we we are talking with enterprises all the time about, hey, the way to look at this is true blended workforces going forward. This is not a rip and replace. This is not 1990s chase the dollar around around Earth until until you run out of geographies where you can get the cheap labor. But it is absolutely okay. Well, you have your FTEs, you've got your traditional quote unquote traditional contractors. And if you successfully understand and blend in uh, other workforces that are freelance workforces, well, you're giving yourself basically the best, the best formidable team you possibly can at this moment, which happens to be quite resilient because you could burst up and down. It could be flexible in the face of things like a, like a pandemic. And it's just a, it, it's not even a nuanced way of looking at it. It's just a much more mature way of looking at it. Um, any any uh, thoughts on conversations with with enterprises when it comes to like their philosophy of of how work is actually evolving for them yes so at a high level all of this comes back to we need to do more with less that's at the high level that's the sort of what we're all shooting towards we can talk about the freelance economy we can talk about automation these are all trends to enable you to do more with less when we say you we mean leaders this can be a leader that's in an organization. You can be a first year in an organization. You can be a VP. You can even be a freelancer, but you're leading, meaning you have to make a massive impact. And 20 years ago, the path was pretty traditional, pretty certain in terms of you would have to scale up through full-time headcount or going through traditional agencies. And if you were that leader, then you had to learn how to be political, right? And generate headcount and generate uh, a budget. But what the freelance economy does is it shreds most of the friction and most of the middle layers so that you as the leader have access to a talent pool that is global, that is digital, that is remote, and that, like you mentioned, can scale up and scale down in a cost-efficient manner. And so at the end of the day, when we're talking with enterprises or startups or you name it, it's about doing more with less. Now, startups and even some SMBs, they've known this for the past 20 years. It's no yeah. secret that a lot of startups have scaled up or even started because they were working with contract designers or contract developers. It's a fairly new concept in the enterprise because enterprises have to move fast and they have to be crazy flexible. And when they look at their options, hiring a full-time headcount takes long. Hiring an agency also takes long, is expensive, and you can't necessarily be agile. Yet when you're working with a freelancer, they can be better, meaning the expertise is something you couldn't get in-house nor an agency could. They can be faster, meaning you can spin something up within a day or two days or even hours if they're on your bench. And they can be more cost efficient, not meaning that the work is cheaper, meaning that instead of spending, you know, spending for six months on an agency, you work with a freelancer for a day or two days or a week. Yeah. And I think that's, that, that comes up all the time when people, when people, when I say when an enterprise uh, approaches, and I'll talk again specifically about us, but I think it's more generic to really any of the crowd slash open talent platforms and a, a, and a traditional HR person, let's say, will come and say, well, what's your rates? You know, like that's, the, what's your rates? And like, and, and right away, you're, you're in a, from a business standpoint, you might be put into a defensive posture. 
right? And it's like, oh, well, it's if I have to give you an average rate. And, and, and meanwhile, we're, we're an outcomes-based platform. And we, we really try and push back and, and discuss, discuss things like, well, what's, how long does it typically take you to hire somebody? Like, what's, what's the cost of ramping somebody, losing them in, in let's say, six months because they weren't the right fit, and then trying to rehire again? And like kind of put the the conversation on a different a different plane. So the ROI is it's it's it gets out of some sort of like you know hourly rate based thing, and it's way more focused on well, we all have the same twenty four hours. How much productivity can you drive in those twenty four hours? And whether that's twenty four a week, you know, a month, whatever it is, um, do you end up consulting and working with like helping enterprises kind of see things differently? Do you do you see those same challenges when you're talking to folks or they want to gravitate back to what they know as opposed to looking at it from maybe just a, a, a more mature, different lens? 100%. Uh, change is crazy hard. Uh, I don't want to signal it to just enterprises. It's more about the traditional processes in place. And the reason I say that is because within an enterprise, you can have a really, really innovative leader who might have already been exposed to these sort of models. And it's easier for that leader to drive change than say a 20 year mid-sized company. The major, 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 major thing in the way was that we've always done it like this, right? That is always something when we're talking about change management or you're talking about a new industry, that's always your biggest competitor. And one of the funny things is there's so much opportunity within the freelance economy, meaning there's multiple platforms, there's millions of free, there's over 50 million global freelancers that generally what happens is it's not about competition with your fellow platforms, it's competition with the actual customer knowing that they can do something different. And the classic answer, which you know, is no one gets hired by firing or no one gets fired by hiring Accenture. That's like the number one thing we need to sort of uh, bat through. But with that said, I mean, this is where COVID, anyway, and I'm sure you have a question related to it, sure. but COVID has blown this off the doors yep. uh, in terms of the number one barrier for a leader to adopt this at scale. They would do this for like one to $10,000 projects, but to really, really dive head first was they would say, this actual work can't be done outside of these four walls. It was the classic special snowflake, right? Yep. And so what COVID has done is obviously now we know most things can be done remote. And now we're moving on to the next giant barrier, which was the agency works good enough. But because COVID's forced you know, business models to reinvent overnight, all of a sudden the speed and the cost efficiency necessitates freelancing because an agency simply can't keep up with, with, and we can call it whatever term we want, right? Freelancers, elastic talent, sure. whichever one we want. But yeah, that's been the major impact to COVID is it's totally blown the doors off the hinges because what I, things have happened in the last year that I didn't expect for the next five years, but it's been mostly driven by remote work adoption has shown us that most of this work can be done. And then the speed and the cost efficiency has been uh, necessary for companies to reinvent their business models. Yeah, and I could def absolutely share from our, our particular experiences too. Um, and again, I'm sure that other talent platforms and other crowd platforms are going, have experienced the same exact thing as you just stated. We've had, we've had, well, I won't name names, but we've had uh, some of them I can, but I won't for this particular instance. Like we've had major, major logos, technology companies who our CEO, which I think you've met, I think you've met Mike Morris before, or yeah. at least I've worked with him. But our CEO has like been out to Silicon Valley, you know, wind and dine with some of these CIOs, CTOs, four, five, six times over the last decade, you know, like eight to 10 years about, hey, you really ought to look at TopCoder as a part of your model. Not, again, not rip and replace, but look at crowd as an element to your new workforce structure. 
And this is, you know, all the way up until um, 2019 and, and the early 2020, 2020. And then COVID hits. And then these same logos who for six, seven years gave every reason not to, uh, besides to actually start, just every reason in the book to not start, uh, suddenly we're like, hey, you know, like, it's almost like, hey, you got, got, any, got any of that good crowdsourcing? You got any, got any good, any of that good open, you know, on-demand talent? And, it's, and it has just forced the hand. Um, which has been obviously that's a silver lining and that that's a good thing. It's it's a good thing. Not it's not not a good thing for top coder. That's a good thing globally. That is a good thing for opportunity for literally billions of people. Certainly millions, and then likely over time billions of people. Because like you had said, that the term was shredded. You're absolutely right. The 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 shredding of all those traditional barriers to entry, and then it's also the the efficacy of the, again, the productivity lift. As you said, it's not about cost, but it is almost like that total cost of ownership if you were to get, get into a wonky term of, well, how long did it take you to get this thing done? <laughs> what kind of outcome did you get? And that's also the beauty of the, of the freelance economy is like it really is based in outcomes and you can get out of, get out of some of those traditional settings. So are there any particular like favorite, uh, you know, favorite case studies or favorite vignettes from the human cloud book that, that you'd like to, uh, to highlight for the audience? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think the one I'm gonna highlight is happened pre-COVID. And one of the things that I'm proud of with the book is we actually didn't change anything because of COVID. We, right. we handed over the manuscript last January and we very intentionally said, we're not even gonna touch a forward related to COVID because what's true today and the past three years will be true in the next 10 years. And we don't wanna turn this into a, you know, this has to happen within six months or this is a get rich quick scheme because mm -hmm. this is not a quick trend or flash in the pan. This is a full transformation. This is literally just like when we said, instead of you know producing things in our home, we're gonna to go to the factory. Except now we're saying, instead of going to the factory, we're gonna be digital, remote, and outcome-based. So, and there's two sides of these case studies, right? There's always the client, which is you as the corporate leader, understanding how to transform your business. And then there's the freelancer, which is the top talent, saying that I'm, I'm in a better place as a freelancer than I am in a full-time role. But so, from a client perspective, my by far favorite case study, and this was back in 2018, was North America's largest motorcycle manufacturer. They needed to digitally transform. They're based in the Midwest. And so how in the world are they gonna get developers to leave Dolores Park in San Francisco to go you know, hang out in the Midwest? I love the Midwest, but good luck convincing you know, fresh Stanford Correct. grads to yep. go change. So instead of even thinking about, okay, how do we hire? How do we show up on university campuses? How do we play the same game? Instead, they said, how do we tap into the human cloud? And so they hired 25 to 30 different designers, developers, product managers, data scientists, and only because they had this crazy elastic network were they able to do what they did. And there's one specific example that I find so cool where the Bluetooth functionality, they had, they found a developer who was a heart, or who was a, a motorcycle you know, enthusiast, and he was sitting in Japan. And so not yeah. only did they need like a Bluetooth expert, but they needed a motorcycle enthusiast who, thank God for an elastic network because they could tap into them all the way in Japan. So that's one of my favorite case studies, you know, is that you can take a 25 to 30 person freelancing team slash network to digitally transform your business, which turned into a mobile app, but also turned into a full digital riding experience that really transforms the brand. So if you're thinking as a company like that is, that's incredible. And the term that I like to use is speed of a startup scale of an enterprise. Yeah. Because you as an enterprise, if you are an enterprise, you actually have a huge advantage in this game because money is money. Is money. 
right? Money is a huge advantage. And so if you can combine the speed and the flexibility of agile talent models, combine that with the resources that you do have, ooh, that is a, a deadly effort. So that's my favorite sort of client case study. When we talk about the, the human case study, there's, there's two I'd really like to highlight. The first is uh, a woman named Sam Mason. She's based out of Cincinnati. Sam Mason was a software VP, but then when she had kids, she wanted to go raise her kids. When she wanted to jump back into the workforce, instead of saying, you're this incredible, you know, you were a VP, you're an incredible project manager, you have all this credibility, they basically said, no, you're stale, you're never going to get to where you used to be. And so she said, screw it, I'm going to do what I've always wanted to do. I love the written word. And so she became this, this editor, this, this, this book editor, but then also a quasi project manager. And so we found her uh, through these talent platforms and she was the best project manager I have ever worked with in my life. And every time I do anything now, I'm like, Sam, are you available? Sam, are you available? <laughs> and usually she's not, right? Because these, these freelancers are so in demand. And so that's a perfect example to me of two things. The first is the freelance economy really democratizes opportunity. So it doesn't care where you went to school, doesn't care where you live. It literally just cares what is the outcome and how can you build a deep relationship to really push the needle forward for, for me as a client. And then the second thing is that it has this crazy cool relationship where like we, we call it remote, right? Mm-hmm. But to me, it's actually more the shifting of deep intentional relationships because when you're not in an office, it forces you to really, really be intentional and proactive about what you're doing, which for me has always built into deeper relationships. And so we did, I and mean, that's... Yeah, so those are my, that's my favorite case study in terms of client. That's my favorite case study in terms of person. And the one thing, a little quick thing, but so there's a case study in the book of a woman named Leanne who freelanced, but also would jump back and forth from freelancing to corporate. And because she had that freelancing mindset, she jumped into a company and took over a leadership role and built up this whole program that was cross-discipline. And, and I would argue, and the book would, you know, based on some of her quotes, it was that freelancing experience that enabled her to jump into a situation that was very chaotic, that was very ambiguous, that didn't have clear deadlines, didn't have clear roles and responsibilities. Because she was outcome uh, driven from her freelancing time, she stood up what became sort of the Microsoft program. Yeah, I, I love I love that, and yet and the softer things you're talking about too, there, Matthew, about the about the you know, hey, in the office setting, you kind of have that for, the forced camaraderie that that comes along with it, and you would describe it as like being you have to be much more intentional that when you're working with a distributed team and you're working maybe, perhaps globally, but certainly remote and distributed, which we all are at this moment. Um, yeah, it, it is it is a different level of human skill and communications to. To still, to still, and like, and yet develop those really uh, bonding relationships. But and guess what? Through the work, uh, through the through the value of good work, and through the value of, of teamwork and collaboration, it can form those things kind of even faster. And in my experience, even stronger. Where the respect level is not is not about you know who you can go have a beer with. That's nice. I, I like having beers also. But the respect level is like a, you know who's who's. Who shows up? Who shows up the right way, and who's coachable, and who and who could I lean on to, uh, to 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 learn different things from? And you learn right away. You learn, and in my experience, most most people uh, are really really um, malleable in a good way. They're they're willing to learn, and they want to they. The psychology is still there. The psychology of wanting to be part of something successful, and the psychology of wanting to be part of something that is clearly doing good. That's there, whether the, whether the office is there or not. the 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 pull is is absolutely still there. And I do want to talk to you about the 
the terminology you use in the book. Uh, by the way, we're talking with Matthew Matola, the co-author of The Human Cloud, and we're, we're diving into different sections of it. We'll talk a little bit later, too, how you could win. I've got two free copies to give away, so stick around to the end, and we'll, we'll disclose how you could, how you could get, get in the ring to get yourself a copy. It's a great book. And, but you use the term, Matthew, you talk about change makers quite a bit. And this idea of change makers. And I think the, the example you just gave would be a really nice example of a, of a woman who departed and came back in. And then she has the ability to be a change maker. But when you're talking with enterprise and you're talking with, with um, folks who want to work this way, they, they really yearn to change, to transform the way that their industry and the, and the way their, their organization is going to work. I would imagine that kind of spotting change makers or understanding the, understanding the biomarkers for what, how to spot change makers has got to be a discussion that comes up through your learnings. Are there different traits or things that, that you would cue people in on and say, Hey, look out for these things. If you see these kind of patterns, you probably have a very good candidate that could, that could embrace this and run with it and really change the org while they're doing it. Yeah. I'd say the overwhelming characteristic is the importance of impact, meaning Change makers, when you go through, they can be freelancers, like we mentioned, they can be leaders in a company, they can be a manager, they can be an analyst, you name it. There's, that's, that's not the sort of the overwhelming characteristic. The, the, the overwhelming one is the, the focus of making a positive impact with their work. And usually work holds extreme meaning. And so I'll give you some of the things to look out for. So the no's, if someone's complaining about free lunches, probably not a change maker. If someone's <laughs> talking about they need balance in their work, Probably not a change maker, but if it's someone who really takes, you know, usually there's two paths. It's either someone who's extremely passionate about their skill or someone who's extremely passionate about an industry or a problem statement. And if you find those people, that's when you realize if you put the resources behind them, usually meaning money and the ability to hire fellow freelancers, then they will create immense impact. One of the things to look for in terms of you're, they're going to have to be some change management required, but it's a, it's an indicator is are they always learning? Meaning are they jumping into these huge pools and saying, I'll take all this responsibility. And what you're probably going to have to change is that you're going to have to help them understand they don't have to do it all. Meaning if you think about like a periodic table, they don't have to memorize every element, but they have to own the strategy and they have to have the leadership to drive the team towards whatever outcome you're driving towards. So yeah, so in terms of what is a change maker, it really comes down to someone that values impact and has extreme meaning in their work and the beauty of the human cloud. And, you know, we can talk about hiring freelancers or even the automation piece, which is the machine cloud, yep. is that it really comes down to enabling change makers to do more with less. And there's some great case studies in the book, but me personally, I kind of fell into it by accident because when I thought about, okay, how in the world am I going to get this project done? I didn't have enough money to hire a full-time employee. I also didn't know anyone. And so, you know, tapping into the human cloud was, it was forced. It was just like freelancing my first time. It was out of survival, not because I wanted to go blog in Bali or, or do it at it for fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad, glad you, you were able to though, because because of the, you know, it's it's it, it, at the end of it too, it's it's quite liberating once you start to work this way. Um, it, I would say it's liberating and I would also use, you know, a strong term. I would also call it quite addictive that once you begin tapping freelance talent uh, from a, let's say it's a project lead or whatever, whatever perspective you have, but you've, you've got to go get an outcome done and you're really tapping into, uh, into freelancers to get, to get major chunks of this done while you're orchestrating it. Um, it becomes really addictive, but I mean that in a very good, in, in the most positive way possible. 
because uh, for me at least, my experience has been Matt that it's like it is about that that speed and the reciprocity and the once you when you are working with good people or on good platforms that you could trust that that bring you good people consistently, um, the reciprocity of your the reciprocity of your velocity, not trying to be cute, is really really addictive. There, it's like play, it's like playing ping pong when you're good and, and so is the person on the other side of the table, and there's there's a real flow to it. And then especially if you start to learn about time zones and how you could, and cultures, and how you can manipulate them. And again, I'll use the word manipulate, but in a good way, in a positive way. And you can manipulate them to your favor so that you could, you could do things over weekends. You could give with people that are cool with it. Not saying go, you know, go slave away in a weekend. But once you understand who you're working with, maybe they prefer to get work done on a Saturday. Maybe that's the time they go do work or Sunday afternoon is the perfect time that they're, they're not bogged with something else and they like to do their freelance work on a Sunday. But even that manipulation in a way, uh, when you blend that back in to like your traditional nine to five, if you will, a traditional job, it could be awesome. You could wake up on Monday morning and be like, oh, I've got new things to go look at. I've got new updates to go check on. And it's just, again, it, it, it's a more mature level of it. However, it's it is not like rocket science to achieve that level. It's just about tinkering and then finding some folks again that, that have that or platforms that deliver that reciprocity to you, which is um, which I don't think is all that hard. I mean, you've done it. I do. I do it on a daily basis. And not to say we're not smart fellows. I'm sure we are. But with that, most people can embrace it. They just have to think that they can almost a, a one, a one. Um, hey, I do want to rotate the conversation quickly to Matthew. You mentioned it just before. You mentioned the other side of the coin, right? The, the machine cloud, which is uh, part of the book. Most of the book, or say maybe 60, 70% is about the human side of it. However, you were very, I, I think, astute to mention that, hey, while we have this rise of the human cloud, there has been this, this other flip side of the, the AI side of things and the automation side of things, which you dub as the machine cloud. Can you define machine cloud broadly? And then what's the fusion? How do these two kind of, how and where do they come together? And what's the, what's the manifestation when they do? Yeah, so let me start with the fusion actually first. So, sure. <laughs> That's all right. so yeah, so both are all about doing more with less. And the way they do that is by automating the friction required to actually get the work done. And so if you look at the human cloud, what friction have we automated? Well, we automated most everything that doesn't have to do with, do with actually doing the work. Meaning instead of having to open up a headcount, instead of having to go through an agency, you can meet with someone, say this is the outcome, they can say, got it. And then within seconds, you're working on that work. So you've automated all the friction to get working. From a machine cloud perspective, and this is where I, this is where my co-author is the beautiful, you know, CTO, early deep learning guy. So he, uh, he would probably kill me for the way I'm going to define it. <laughs> but anything digital, any digital tool that is reducing the repetitive tasks that you do to free up time that you can actually focus on creative work. And we kind of take for granted how much we do have. So if you mm -hmm. think about it, like we, we talked about it in the book, but one is just calendaring. Like the fact that I can give you a calendar link and you can go do all that automatically that's, that's incredible. Another one that I, I, I always find hilarious is like, we have the world's knowledge in the palm of our hands. Like that is so insane and so cool because what, thousands of years ago, we have to send someone off to go figure out a question that now we can literally just type in in seconds. So yeah, so the, the fusion and basically the main takeaway of the human cloud and, and of where we're going is that never before have you been able to do so much with so little. And the reason for the human cloud and machine cloud is because they automate the friction 
that lets you focus on actually doing the work. When you talk about the human cloud, it takes away the friction to actually collaborate and get the right people to help collaborate with you. And then we talk about the machine cloud, it automates the friction of all those repetitive tasks that you keep doing. Awesome, and I think you so you, you did mention your your co-author, uh, another Matthew. Is it is it Cotney? Is that how you say his last name? Yeah. Okay, yep. Matthew. Okay, good. Got it. Got on the first try. So, and and you mentioned that he's kind of the AI and and deep learning deep learning guru, and then uh, yeah. you know you guys obviously made made a good duo here for for your book, The Human Cloud. And then as we flip it forward too, you also uh, co-founded a, a a newer company that started basically right at the onset of uh, as LinkedIn would say. March 2020, so the very, very beginning of COVID, and you're out there launching a new company called Venture L. I know you're a co-founder. Is that also with uh, with the other Matthew, or is that is that a different partner? Separate co-founder, separate co-founder. Ricardo, actually, we uh, and Ricardo is based in Singapore, and which is a good testament of the human cloud, right? Yeah. Where my co-founders in Singapore, we have uh, some of our, our team is actually in Germany and Vietnam and all over the globe, and then our freelancers are on every single continent, uh, as I'm sure top coder ones are as well. So, sure, yeah. yeah, it's a it's a testament of of how much we can do if location isn't isn't a constraint. Well, which which is which for most uh, for many for more and more and more dare I say most it it no longer is which is which is a beautiful thing. So it it is called Venture L, and I want people to get an understanding of it. So my cursory understanding is it's really specifically focused on helping freelancers maximize their work, their opportunities, their projects, and more. And it's a lot about um, for me. It looked like the way in which you help them organize their work, the way in which you help them bundle their tool sets and and give them like a view. Like give yeah. them a way of getting this done as opposed to probably feeling spread really thin because of different demands and differently. I'm, I'm Slack over here, Teams over here, Masana over here, whatever. And, and that's just, that's just, you know, productivity tool type things, PM type tools. Um, but holistically, who, who is Venture L serving and, and why does it exist? Yeah, so so let me let me give you the story of the name, or let me give you the meaning of the name, and that sure. should answer hopefully everything. If not, then <laughs> oh no, our marketing and branding needs a needs a slap. But so, what Venturell is saying, and, and and this has been consistent with my experience, you know, throughout freelancing, we need to transition from individuals to ventures. What I mean by that is freelancing at scale is not a bunch of individuals blogging on a beach in Bali or just doing back office tasks. It's taking over these really, really complex things that prior would require 500 person orgs or even massive agencies. So the example of the large motorcycle manufacturer, that wasn't an individual freelancer, that was 25 to 30 different freelancers. So in my experience, and I'm sure you're gonna hit on sort of what is some of the challenges that we face as an industry, The number one challenge is that the way we've built the industry today is not where the industry is going tomorrow. And so we built this industry based off of the gig economy, which was great for individual tasks and really, really opened up the front door. But what we need to get to, specifically what our clients need from us, is we need to compete directly against an agency which means we need to take on complex projects, which is sort of you know, driven by two things, both the ability to have multiple people and multiple in, in, within teams, but then also to have a diversity in skill sets. So that when a Microsoft or whatever company it is, says that, oh, this thing worked, we need to scale up, 
we won't be constrained by not having enough people nor not having the right skills on the talent cloud. So that's the whole reason for Venture Out is the fact that as an industry, we have to go from being individuals to be able to compete directly against the agencies, specifically by taking on team-based work and having a diversity of skill sets so that our clients can scale up. So that's the basic premise. In terms of what we actually do is we do focus 100% on the freelancers. So right now, our freelancers, they can be on different platforms, they can have their own website, their website might be their own platform, but the overwhelming similarity is that they do collaborate with five to 50 fellow freelancers, but it's really, really, really hard to have a network and to actually mobilize that. So freelancers hiring freelancers is the massive bottleneck in the way of being able to take on team-based work. So that's what we directly hit using software. Sort of in a perfect world, what happens is that freelancers without us, they might be making say 50 to 150 a year, but they're rejecting a lot of projects. Mm. Whereas freelancers with us are able to say yes to more projects and able to hire more of their fellow freelancers. Because one little secret is, really good freelancers, they actually don't look like freelancers, they look like an agency. And so they might be a studio, and then they have people underneath them. And so they take on a 50k website project, then they subcontract 50 to 75% of that. And so Venturel is the operating system enabling these team based projects and large projects to happen. Yeah, I love love the I love the why, and I think the uh, the execution is, is certainly there as well. And it's and it's it all about scale, like you said, because and I think you have to also think about it you're framing it up beautifully from the vantage point of the freelancer who would have to say no to work. Like, to, I get it. You, you're going to cap out as an individual person. You have some saturation point, even if your work ethic is through the friggin' roof, there's going to be like, a, I can't take that on without sacrificing pro- probably health at some point. Um, and that's for super high performers. They still become saturated. Uh, and, th- and then they can, they can burst out themselves into networks that make sense for them. The other side of the coin is it's also it's also so much better for the businesses because the businesses don't want to have to island hop. The businesses don't want to have to go one by one by one and piecemeal this together and try to find all these disparate skills. It's one of the reasons at Topcutter when we run project work that the that first we break the work down, we atomize the work for the customer because we want to attract hyper-specialists who know what the freak they're doing in that particular element and allow it to be natural that the specialists can stream into elements without the lifts being too big. So it's one of the things we've really focused on at Topcoder is exactly that, that, hey, very often it's not about one person. It's about getting a cadre of people that know skills up and down some chain. In the software world, it's a little, sometimes a little easier to parse because they become so specialized and it becomes a, there is a SDLC to building software. But Really, regardless, that's any project. Any project can be broken into smaller elements. And then from the market side of it, how attractive is that if you could, instead of going or, or having to have like a match.com a hundred times over, what if you could find two or three and then they could really burst, whether that's platform or, as you said, freelancers that kind of actually guise as an agency, but really are bursting out to other freelancers. So love the sweet spot that Venturel is, is filling and makes a it makes a ton of sense. Any, any, um, anything you want to add about the the uh, the service that it does provide to the to the business side of the market? 
Yeah, so, and I think this is going to be applicable. What I want to add, it's going to be applicable whether it's venture or not venture. And, and most important, right. it's about your, your, you know, your audience thinking about how can I embrace yep. freelance talent. So this is sort of a, a perfect use case of what this looks like from day one all the way up until year one or even spending up $100 million. So it all starts by saying you're going to someone like the chief marketing officer. And you say, we can help you better serve your customers because we have faster, flexible, and cost-efficient ways to bring in talent so that you have access to skills and everything we talked about before. That chief marketing officer says, this sounds great. Let me throw you down to a product marketing manager to do a quick little POC to prove out that this actually works. And so maybe they take on one article, maybe two articles. Maybe if that works, then they take on a white paper. But what's going to happen is you're going to start by working on a very, very small POC, which is what freelancers are great at today. But then what that chief marketing officer needs is for you to scale up and to go from doing just one article to the full white paper, to the full website, to the full ad campaign, to the full product launch. And that's what, it, you know, whether it's VentureL or whatever it is, that's what we need to get to as an industry is the ability to start small, but then really scale up. And what you're seeing from a company side and a lot of the companies that dive head first into embracing freelance talent is that they do model similar to product studios. What I mean by that is they don't say we need a full-time employee for every single skill. They say we need a full-time employee that takes ownership over this outcome and then freelance talent will augment and amplify that employee's ability to deliver that outcome. Yeah, and I think, and and I would even, uh, it's having, you know, 12 plus years experience now too. I think there's even ways to keep, the exciting part for me is like even ways to keep pushing the value chain for where you apply freelancer, where you apply gig talent, uh, on-demand talent, where you know some of the newer models or the or the more mature models also even allow for that project management level. Like, hey, that that person can also be from the crowd, and that you could literally keep once you find the, the way in which you want to do it, the burstability starts to become. You could keep pushing to go from if you want to dip your toe at just tasks, okay, be our guest. However, I think you and I would both challenge that and say. Go bigger, like you know, go to go to projects. Do something with a little more meat on the bones. Do something, do something meaningful. And uh, like right now, I have a I have a freelance uh, head head of content. She's absolutely fantastic. She, we you know, I talk to her at least twice a week, and we're we're on Slack, you know, all the time. But she also operates Verblio for me. So Verblio is a content platform, and I I know and I've had I've had their CEO on on this on this show. But so I have a freelancer in a managerial role, who I think is you know, phenomenal. She's, she's great at what she does. She wants to be a freelancer, by the way. Absolutely lo- like adores that she has the, the freedom to do what she does. She'll bounce back and forth from Wyoming. And then, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Wisconsin, a little different, back to San Diego and go back to see some family in Wisconsin. And she just gives me a heads up. Hey, I won't be available for the, okay, cool, totally cool. Her productivity is through the roof. And she manages another uh, crowd a content platform on my behalf. Now, yes, I'm integrated and I, I do the work there, but the level of burstability can keep getting, you can keep gaining more when you when you have the trust, when the, when the trust is established on, on both sides. And again, I would say just like um, just like VentureL, it's it's not about individual island hopping, but it's it's also grooving into platforms. And in your case, you describe it as an operating system, which I love grooving into operating systems that you trust the burstability because you know the talent coming through there is consistently good. And that's that that next level of maturity where it's not just gig hopping, but it really is throttling through these platforms and operating systems, which I think is a, a fabulous place to 
probably cap it for today, Matthew. So we've been, we've been chatting with Matthew Matola. He is the author of The Human Cloud, How Today's Changemakers Use Artificial Intelligence and the Freelance Economy to Transform Work. Stick around that extra 10 seconds. I'll tell you how you could get your very own copy of this book. And Matthew, thanks so much for joining us on the Upriser podcast. Absolute pleasure to have you on. Where can people find and follow and, and see you out there on social? What's the best place to, to track you down? Yeah, so start with LinkedIn. Uh, I promise I'll be responsive. I can't promise you 24 or 48, but within 72 hours, I'll respond. Uh, don't spam me that. I don't try to sell stuff. Um, <laughs> so start there and then humancloudbook.com or search it through Amazon and then ventureL.io. But if you go to my LinkedIn, you'll find everything there. Awesome. It's a great book. I, I highly recommend it. So it's just for those... For me, it's like, okay, if, you, if you've got that spidey sense tingling in your gut that there is a better way to do this, you're inside an enterprise or you're the freelancer and you know there's a better way to, to kind of burst into the future, if you will, this is a must have book. Plus it's a really good one to, if you already kind of believe these things, well, guess what? Get your colleagues and get your boss to read this. Get them convert them through, through this mechanism because it really could be useful that way too. So any of those crowd or, or freelance talent champions out there, can't recommend the book highly enough. I think it'll serve you well and really help you get to do what you want to go do next. So Matthew, man, thank you so much for joining us on the Upriser podcast and we look forward to giving these books away and see what kind of response we get. Thanks for having me. Can't wait for you all to read it. Nice, thanks. All right, so I had mentioned that I have a couple, that means two free copies of The Human Cloud by Matthew Matola and Matthew Coatney. We obviously just had Matt on as a guest. I hope you enjoyed him as much as I did. And these are the audiobook versions too, so you can just plop it in your ears and get on with your day and listen to this great book. So here's how you could win it. First and foremost, go to youtube.com slash upriser, U-P-R-I-S-O-R. Find this episode and then in the comments, just drop the biggest takeaway. So if it was like, hey, the best moment or biggest takeaway with your interview with Matthew was, you know, dot, 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 fill in the blanks. You tell me what it is, put the comment there. We'll randomly draw two winners and, and then send you the code so you can enjoy the book. It is really a great book and I hope you enjoy it. While you're out on YouTube, remember to subscribe, hit that little bell so you get the notifications because every single week we are bringing you fresh content with those in the open talent movement, just like Matthew. And again, subscribe to Uprisers, share it out there. The podcast is really growing handsomely and we're, we're fired up about that. So big thanks to Matthew for coming on and go get that free book, youtube.com slash Upriser and drop your comment. Thanks so much. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to the Upriser podcast. It's available wherever you get your podcasts, so it's pretty easy. And of course, I encourage you to follow us out on social at Upriser, U-P-R-I-S-O-R on Twitter. And also, I would encourage you to follow Topcoder at Topcoder, T-O-P-C-O-D-E-R. 